0: Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Ocean Story, or Triumphs of 30 Centuries by Edward Rowland explores the historical evolution of humanity's interaction with the ocean over the course of 30 centuries. The book examines how perceptions of the ocean have changed from ancient times to the present day, encompassing aspects such as maritime exploration, shipbuilding, commerce, and technological advancements. Significant historical events such as Columbus' discovery of the Americas, Da Gama's route to the Indies, and Magellan's circumnavigation are discussed in relation to their impact on trade, Colonization and navigation. These explorations opened up new trade routes and brought about the colonization of far off lands by various European powers. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's 3Zs.media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account, podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 1 A history of the ocean from the flood to the Atlantic telegraph with a parallel sketch of shipbuilding from the ark to the ironclad a narrative of the rise of commerce, from the days when Solomon's ships trade with Ophir, to the time when a steam whistle is heard on every open sea, a consecutive chronicle of the progress of navigation, from the day when the timid mariner hugged the coast by day and prudently cast anchor by night, to the time when the steamship, apparently endowed with reason, or at least guided by instinct, seems almost to dispense with the aid of man. Such a theme seems to offer topics of interest which it would be difficult to find in any other subject. The reader will readily perceive its scope when we have briefly rehearsed what the sea once was to man and what it now is the purpose of the work being to narrate how, from the one it has become the other. In early times, in the scriptural and classic periods, the grey oceans were unknown mankind at least that portion whose history has descended to us dwelt upon the borders of an inland mediterranean sea they had never heard of such an expanse of water as the atlantic and certainly had never seen it the landlocked sheet which lay spread out at their feet was at all times full of mystery and often even a dread and secret misgiving Those who ventured forth upon its bosom came home and told marvellous tales of the sights they had seen and the perils they had endured. Homer's heroes returned to Ithaca with the music of the sirens in their ears and the cruelties of the giants upon their lips. The Argonauts saw whirling rocks implanted in the sea to warn and repel the approaching navigator and, as if the mystery of the waters had tinged with fable even the dry land beyond it they filled the Caucasus with wild stories of enchantresses, of bulls that breathed fire, and of a race of men that sprang, like a ripened harvest, from the prolific soil. If the ancients were ignorant of the shape of the earth, it was for the very reason that they were ignorant of the ocean. Their geographers and philosophers, whose observations were confined to fragments of Europe, Asia, and Africa, alternately made the world a cylinder a flat surface begirt by water, a drum, a boat, a disc. The legends that sprang from these confused and contradictory notions made the land a scene of marvels and the water in a boat of terrors. At a later period, when, with the progress of time, The love of adventure or the needs of commerce had drawn the navigator from the Mediterranean through the pillars of Hercules into the Atlantic, and when some conception of the immensity of the waters had forced itself upon minds dwarfed by the contracted limits of the inland sea, then the ocean became in good earnest a receptacle of gloomy and appalling horrors. And the marvels narrated by those fortunate enough to return told how deeply the Imagination had been stirred by the new scenes open to their vision. Pythias, who coasted from Marseilles to the Shetland Isles, and who there obtained a glance at the bleak and wintry desolation of the North Sea, declared, on reaching home, that his further progress was barred by an immense black mollusk, which hung suspended in the air, and in which a ship would be inextricably involved, and where no man could breathe. The menaces of the south were even more appalling than the perils of the north, for he who should venture, it was said, across the equator into the regions of the sun would be changed into a negro for his rashness. Besides, in the popular belief, the waters there were not navigable. Upon the quaint charts of the Middle Ages, a giant located upon the Canary Islands forbade all farther venture westward, by brandishing his formidable club in the path of all vessels coming from the east. Upon these singular maps, the concealed and treacherous horrors of the deep were displayed in the grotesque shapes of sea monsters and distorted water unicorns, which were represented as careering through space and wheeling the navigator. Even in the time of Columbus, and when the introduction of the compass into European ships should have somewhat diminished the fantastic terrors of the sea, we find that the Arabians, the best geographers of the time, represented the bony, gnarled hand of Satan as rising from the waves of the sea of darkness as the Atlantic was then called ready to seize and engulf the presumptuous mariner. The sailors of Columbus, on reaching the Sargasso Sea, where the collected weeds offered an impediment to their progress, thought they had arrived at the limit of navigation and the end of the world. Five years later, the crew of Gama, on doubling the Cape of Good Hope, imagined they saw, in the threatening clouds that gathered about Table Rock, the form of a spectre waving off their vessel and crying woe to all who should thus invade his dread dominion. The Neptune of the Classics, in short, who disported himself in the narrow waters of the Mediterranean, and of whose wrath we have read the famous mythologic accounts, was a deity altogether bland and debonair compared to the gloomy and revengeful monopolist of the seas, such as the historians and geographers of the Middle Ages painted him. And now Columbus had discovered the western continent, da Gama had found an ocean route to the Indies, and Magellan, sailing around the world, had proved its ferocity and approached the Spice Islands from the east. For centuries, now, the two great oceans were the scenes of grand and useful maritime expeditions. The tropical islands of the Pacific arose, one by one, from the bosom of the sea to reward the navigator or relieve the outcast. The Spanish, by dint of cruelty and rapacity, filled their famous Manila galleons and Acapulco treasure ships with the spoils of warfare and the legitimate fruits of trade. The English, seeking to annoy a nation with whom, though not at war, they were certainly not at peace, sent against their golden fleets the piratical squadrons of Anson, Drake, and Hawkins. For years property was not safe upon the sea, and trading ships went armed while the armed vessels of nations turned buccaneers. The Portuguese and Dutch colonized the coasts and islands of India, Spain sent Cortez and Pizarro to Mexico and Peru, and England drove the Puritans across a stormy sea to Plymouth. Commerce was spread over the world, and civilization and Christianity were introduced into the desert and the wilderness. Two centuries more and steam made the Atlantic Ocean a ferry transit and the electric telegraph has now made its 3,000 miles of salt water but is one link in that girdle which Shakespeare foresaw and which Puck promised to perform. The cable is complete and in working order from New Orleans to Sebastopol. Having thus rapidly described what the ocean once was in man's estimation and having cursorily traced the steps by which it has taken its place in the world's economy, it remains for us to say what the ocean now is and what place it now holds. It is the peaceful highway of nations, a highway without tax or toll. Were the noble idea of the late Secretary Marcy adopted by all nations private property upon the sea would be sacred even in time of war. If the distances be considered, the sea is the safest and most commodious route from spot to spot, whether for merchandise or man. It has given up its secrets with perhaps the single exception of its depth and like the lightning and the thunderbolt has submitted to the yoke. Though still sublime in its immensity and its power, it has lost those features of character which once made it mysterious and fantastic and has become the sober and humdrum pathway of traffic. Mail routes are as distinctly marked upon its surface as the equator or the meridian of Greenwich. Steamships leave their docks punctually at the stroke of noon. The monsters that plow its waters have been hunted by man till the race is well nigh exhausted. For the leviathan which frightened the ancients is the whale which has illuminated the moderns. The chant of the sirens is hushed, and in its place are heard the clatter of rushing paddle wheels, the fog whistle on the banks, the song of the forecastle, the yo ho of sailors toiling at the ropes, the salute in mid ocean, sometimes, alas, the minute gun at sea. The romance and fable that once had here their chosen home have fled to the caves and taken refuge amid the grottoes, and the legends that were lately told of the ocean would now be out of place even in a graveyard or a haunted house. The sailor, to whom once the route was trackless and untrodden, now consults a volume of charts which he has obtained from the National Observatory and finds his course laid out upon data derived from analogy and oft-repeated experience. He takes this or that direction in accordance with known facts of the prevalence of winds or the motion occurrence. He keeps a record of his own experience that in its turn it may be useful to others. He has plans and surveys which give him the bearings of every port, the indentations of every coast, the soundings of every pass. Beacons warn him of reefs and sunken rocks, and buoys mark out his course through the shallows of sounds and straits. A modern lighthouse costs a million dollars, and a breakwater involves the finances of a state. If a new lighthouse is erected, or is the warning lamp for any reason discontinued upon any coast, the fact is made known to the commerce of all nations by a notice to mariners inserted in the marine department of the newspapers most likely to meet their eye. A vessel at sea is safer from spoliation than is the traveler upon the high road or the sojourner in a city, for there are robbers and depredators everywhere upon the land while there is not a pirate on the ocean. There are well-laden treasure ships in the Panama and California waters, as in the times of Drake and Anson, but the world is much older than it was, and buccaneers and flibisteers now only infest the land. In short, the ocean, once a formidable and repellent element, now furnishes Christian food and healthful employment to millions. Instead of serving to affright and appal the dwellers upon the continents which it surrounds, it renders their atmosphere more respirable, it affords them safe conveyance, and raises for them a school of heroes. The ocean, then, has a history, it has a past worth narrating, adventures worth telling and it has played a part in the advancement of science, in the extension of geographical knowledge, in the spread of civilization and the progress of discovery, which it is eminently worth our while to ponder and digest. Its gradual submission to invasion from the land, its successive surrender of the islands in the tropics and the ice mountains at the poles, its slow but certain release of its secrets, its final abandonment of its exclusiveness, with a multitude of attendant incidents, accidents, battles, disasters, shipwrecks, famines, robberies, mutinies, piracies the theme and purpose of these pages. Although the ocean has lost its terrors and has given up its dominion and dread over the mind of man, it is still poetic and has been often made to assume a profound moral significance and furnish apt religious illustrations. In this connection, we cannot do better than to quote from Dr. Greenwood's Poetry and Mystery of the Sea, a passage which strongly and beautifully enforces this view. The sea is his, and he made it, cries the psalmist of Israel, in one of those bursts of enthusiasm in which he so often expresses the whole of a vast subject by a few simple words. Whose else, indeed, could it be? And by whom else could it have been made? Who else can eat its tides and appoint its bounds? Who else can urge its mighty waves to madness with the breath and wings of the tempest, and then speak to again in a master's accents and bid it be still? Who else could have peopled it with its countless inhabitants and caused it to bring forth its various productions and filled it from its deepest bed to its expanded surface, filled it from its center to its remotest shores, filled it to the brim with beauty and mystery and power? Majestic ocean, glorious sea, no created being rules thee or made thee. What is there more sublime than the trackless, desert? all-surrounding, unfathomable sea? What is there more peacefully sublime than the calm, gently heaving, silent sea? What is there more terribly sublime than the angry, dashing, foaming sea? Power-resistless, overwhelming power is its attribute and its expression, whether in the careless, conscious grandeur of its deep rest, or the wild tumult of its excited wrath. It is awful when its crested waves rise up to make a compact with the black clouds and the howling winds and the thunder and the thunderbolt, and they sweep on, in the joy of their dread alliance, to do the Almighty's bidding. And it is awful, too, when it stretches its broad level out to meet in quiet union in the bended sky and show in the line of meeting the vast rotundity of the world. There is majesty in its wide expanse, separating and enclosing the great continents of the earth, occupying two-thirds of the whole surface of the globe, penetrating the land with its bays and secondary seas, and receiving the constantly pouring tribute of every river, of every shore. There is majesty in its fullness, never diminishing and never increasing. There is majesty in its integrity, for its whole vast substance is uniform in its local unity, for there is but one ocean, and the inhabitants of any one maritime spot may visit the inhabitants of any other in the wide world. Its depth is sublime, who can sound it? Its strength is sublime, what fabric of man can resist it? Its voice is sublime whether in the prolonged song of its ripple or the stern music of its roar, whether it utters its hollow and melancholy tones within a labyrinth of wave-worn caves, or thunders at the base of some huge promontory, or beats against a toiling vessel's sides, lulling the voyager to rest with the strains of its wild monotony, or dies away with the calm and fading twilight in gentle murmurs on some sheltered shore. The sea possesses beauty and richness, of its own, it borrows it from earth, and air, and heaven. The clouds lend it the various dyes of their wardrobe, and throw down upon it the broad masses of their shadows as they go sailing and sweeping by. The rainbow leaves in it its many-colored feet. The sun loves to visit it, and the moon and the glittering brotherhood of planets and stars, for they delight themselves in its beauty. The sunbeams return from it in showers of diamonds and glances of fire, the moonbeams find in it a pathway of silver where they dance to and fro with the breezes and the waves through the livelong night. It has a light, too, of its own, a soft and sparkling light, rivaling the stars, and often does the ship which cuts its surface leave streaming behind a milky way of dim and uncertain lustre like that which is shining dimly above. It harmonizes in its forms and sounds both with the night and the day. It cheerfully reflects the light and it unites solemnly with the darkness. It imparts sweetness to the music of men and grandeur to the thunder of heaven. What landscape is so beautiful as one upon the borders of the sea? The spirit of its loveliness is from the waters where it dwells and rests singing its spells and scattering its charms on all the coasts. What rocks and cliffs are so glorious as those which are washed by the chafing sea? What groves and fields and dwellings are so enchanting as those which stand by the reflecting sea? If we could see the great ocean as it can be seen by no mortal eye, beholding at one view what we are now obliged to visit in detail and spot by spot, if we could, from a flight far higher than the eagles, view the immense surface of the deep all spread out beneath us like a universal chart, what an infinite variety such a scene would display. Here a storm would be raging, the thunder bursting, the waters boiling, and rain and foam and fire all mingling together, and here, Next to this scene of magnificent confusion, we should see the bright blue waves glittering in the sun and clapping their hands for very gladness. Here we should see a cluster of green islands set like jewels in the bosom of the sea and there we should see broad shoals and grey rocks, fretting the billows and threatening the mirror. Here we should discern a ship propelled by the steady wind of the tropics, and inhaling the almost visible odors which diffuse themselves around the spice islands of the east. There we should behold a vessel piercing the cold barrier of the north, struggling among hills and fields of ice, and contending with winter in his own everlasting dominion. Nor are the ships of man the only travelers we shall perceive upon this mighty map of the ocean. Flocks of seabirds are passing and repassing, diving for their food or for pastime, migrating from shore to shore with unwearied wing and undeviating instinct, or wheeling and swarming around the rocks which they make alive and vocal by their numbers and their clanging cries. We shall behold new wonders and riches when we investigate the seashore. We shall find both beauty for the eye and food for the body in the varieties of shellfish which adhere in myriads to the rocks or form their close dark burrows in the sands. In some parts of the world we shall see those houses of stone which the little coral insect rears up with patient industry from the bottom of the waters, till they grow into formidable rocks and broad forests whose branches never wave and whose leaves never fall. In other parts we shall see those pale, glistening pearls which adorn the crowns of princes, and are woven in the hair of beauty, extorted by the relentless grasp of man from the hidden stores of ocean, and spread round every coast there are beds of flowers, and thickets of plants, which the dew does not nourish, and which man has not sown, nor cultivated, nor reaped, but which seem to belong to the floods alone, and the denizens of the floods, until they are thrown up by the surges, and we discover that even the dead spoils of the fields of ocean may fertilize and enrich the fields of earth. They have a life and a nourishment and an economy of their own. And we know little of them, except that they are there in their briny nurseries, reared up into luxuriance by what would kill like a mortal poison, the vegetation of the land. There is mystery in the sea. There is mystery in its depths it is unfathomed and, perhaps, unfathomable. Who can tell, who shall know, how near its pits run down to the central core of the world? Who can tell what wells, what fountains, are there, to which the fountains of the earth are but drops? Who shall say whence the ocean derives those inexhaustible supplies of salt which so impregnate its waters that all the rivers of the earth? pouring into it from the time of the creation, have not been able to freshen them? What undescribed monsters, what unimaginable shapes, may be roving in the profoundest places of the sea, never seeking and perhaps, from their nature, never able to seek the upper waters and expose themselves to the gaze of man? What glittering riches, what heaps of gold, What stores of gems there must be scattered in lavish profusion in the ocean's lowest bed? What spoils from all climates, what works of art from all lands have been engulfed by the insatiable and reckless waves? Who shall go down to examine and reclaim this uncounted and idle wealth? Who bears the keys of the deep? And oh, yet more affecting to the heart and mysterious to the mind What companies of human beings are locked up in that wide, weltering, unsearchable grave of the sea? Where are the bodies of those lost ones over whom the melancholy waves alone have been chanting requiem? What shrouds were wrapped round the limbs of beauty and of manhood and of placid infancy when they were laid on the dark floor of that secret tomb? Where are the bones, the relics of the brave and the timid, the good and the bad, the parent, the child, the wife, the husband, the brother, the sister, the lover, which have been tossed and scattered and buried by the washing, wasting, wandering sea. The journeying winds may sigh as year after year they pass over their beds. The solitary rain cloud may weep in darkness over the mingled remains which lies trued in that unwanted cemetery but who shall tell the bereaved to what spot their affections may cling and where shall human tears be shed throughout that solemn sepulcher it is mystery all when shall it be resolved who shall find it out who but he to whom the wildest waves listen reverently and to whom all nature bows he who shall one day speak and be heard in oceans profound as caves to whom the deep Even the lowest deep shall give up its dead, when the sun shall sicken, and the earth and the isles shall languish, and the heavens be rolled together like a scroll, and there shall be no more S.E.A. It now remains for us to investigate the origin of navigation as preliminary to our subject, and then to commence the task before us with the history of Noah, the first seaman, and the ark, the vessel he commanded.